The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this evening, The Wrath of the Lamb, The Wrath of the Lamb, Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. Now, in our study of Revelation, this evening we arrive now at the sixth seal. And the lamb who was slain has taken the scroll from the right hand of him who sits on the throne. And he, having taken the scroll, has begun to execute the decrees that are written in the scroll concerning these last days. Decrees written on the inside and on the outside concerning days characterized by persecution. Days characterized by the tribulation uh, of the Lord's church as she carries out her mission in this wicked and corrupt world, a mission to spread the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Days in which many over the breadth of the earth suffer the plagues that are symbolized here, particularly by the four horsemen. The whore, four horsemen dispatched in keeping with what has been written in the scroll. They ride throughout the course of this present age. They ride throughout the course of the church age, these last days, an age that encompasses the time of the end, days between the first and second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as they are seen to ride over the course of the earth, over the course of this age, they pour out the tribulations that are associated with this age. Those tribulations, tools of Satan as it were, that he uses decreed by God, ordained by God, but tools of Satan that he uses to persecute and wage war on the seed of the woman, uh, tools that he uses to persecute the seed of the woman, a false counterfeit religion, a false Christs, false brothers, false teachers, false churches. He uses the sword, pestilence, famine, beasts of the earth. Uh, they are plagues not unlike those we saw poured out on Egypt at the time of the Exodus in which God himself put down the idols of the land of Egypt, those false gods of the pagan nations around them, and plagues decreed by God that at the same time they serve to harden and punish those who dwell upon the earth, while at the very same time plagues that serve to refine or purify the faith of God's elect as they persevere through much tribulation before they enter the consummated kingdom. In its description of these terrors, in its description of these plagues, Revelation draws upon typological language that is found in the Old Testament. It's as if John dips his new covenant pen in Old Testament ink, in the Old Testament inkwell, in order to write or describe the vision that he's been given. The language of covenant curses poured out on God's people in their own idolatry And that language, if it was poured out on Israel in their idolatry, uh, and if judgment begins at the household of God, then what must we expect the end to be for those who do not obey the gospel of a God? Uh, We would expect on this scroll, in the words of Ezekiel, to see lamentation, mourning, and woe. All of those judgments that are written in the scroll, and all of those judgments culminating in, or reaching their apex in, the judgment of this world directly associated with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all building to that point. We see iterations in the pattern. God's judgments upon the wicked being poured out. That's Romans chapter 1. God's 
judgment, God's wrath being presently revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And as God's judgment, God's wrath being poured out upon the wickedness of men, uh, that pattern continues as birth pains upon a pregnant woman increasing in frequency and severity until we reach the final judgment, the apex of that pattern uh, in judgment that is directly associated with the final return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That day is a day, and that judgment is a judgment that the people of God in Scripture are seen to long for. It's a judgment that we long for, a day that we long for. And we see that expressed by the persecuted people of God under the fifth seal in verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. They're persecuted for the word of God. It is always found on their lips. They're persecuted for their martyria or for their witness, for the testimony that they give of Jesus Christ. And verse 10, they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Well, they and we too are encouraged to wait a little while. It's not yet, but it is coming. God is not slack concerning his promise. In the language of Romans chapter 8, which we looked at this morning, we're to eagerly await that day with perseverance. A perseverance that involves the assembled saints, for example, in worship on the Lord's day. When we come together like this in worship, it's in keeping with that. It's hastening the day that the Lord will return. It's eagerly waiting and waiting with perseverance. It's a perseverance that entails or involves warfare and oftentimes a bitter warfare against sin. And it's a perseverance that includes a faithful witness for Jesus Christ. We are to witness, we're to be witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ during this time of the end until he returns. Now, it's this prayer prayed by those under the altar, under the fifth seal, that we then see answered under the sixth seal, where God first deals with the cosmos that is under the curse and then deals with mankind under the curse. Now, first... The Lord deals with the cosmos under the curse. Look at verse 12. God begins to answer the prayer of those under the altar. Their prayer ushers in, as it were, the conditions are met, and their prayer ushers in the events that take place under the sixth seal, where God begins first to deal with the cosmos, the created order that is under the curse. We found in Romans chapter 8 that the created order is subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Hope of what? Hope of its deliverance from its bondage of corruption, bondage to corruption, right? This cosmos, this created order is under a curse, and we see God dealing with that first in verse 12. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. The second, the Lord then deals with mankind under the curse. And what we find is that this entire created order is a package deal, so to speak. These things all fit together. Uh, the deliverance of man will mean the deliverance of the cosmos. The deliverance of the cosmos will mean the deliverance of man. The curse of man under the sin meant the curse of the cosmos under the ravages of sin as well. And when the created order is delivered, men will be delivered as well. D God deals with mankind under the curse, then beginning in verse 15. And the kings of the earth, 
the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? The great day of his wrath is the great and terrible day of the Lord. In other words, this particular section of text, in particular, the sixth seal, depicts that day in which the Lord Jesus Christ returns in judgment. It would seem to many quick to get to this point, but remember, we're dealing with seven literary cycles, and we're in the second of seven cycles, each of those cycles dealing with the church age between the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his return. And so we see now, in this particular cycle, we've come to the sixth seal and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly in judgment. We're going to see the people of God in worship in eternity in chapter 7. Right now, we're dealing with the judgment, the wrath of the Lamb, in the sixth seal, chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. Now, the conditions in verse 11 have been met concerning those who had been slain for the word of God, for the testimony which they held, the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, obviously now completed, and that eschatological fulfillment now ushers in the return of the Lord in final judgment upon the nations. The sixth seal is God's answer to the prayer of his people. The sixth seal is God's ultimate answer to those who are under the altar, those who have been persecuted for the sake of their Lord Jesus Christ. And it represents, the sixth seal really represents the last chapter of world history. This world is wrapped up, so to speak, before God's people are ushered into the eternal state. Now, the language that opens this segment the language that signifies the opening of the sixth seal, we're going to see is typological language. Typological language that we see throughout the Bible, and that language throughout the Bible pointing us forward to its ultimate fulfillment, its final iteration, if you will, in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and final judgment. In particular, we see this language, the language of verses 12 through 14 first, throughout the Old Testament prophets. We see that language in Isaiah, prevalently in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel. We see it in Hosea, Joel, Amos, Habakkuk. Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets are using this typological language. And again, the typological language designed to point us forward, to press us, if you will, to press us against the events that take place at the end of the age. And there's a reason for that. It presses us against the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment. And again, there's a reason for that, and we'll discuss in a moment. It's language that speaks typologically of cataclysmic events, cosmic disturbances, and all associated with a final iteration at the apex of history, as it were, at the return of Jesus Christ in judgment, as God deals with the cosmos under the curse. And for that language, let's take a look at a few places in scripture. I want to go through several texts tonight. So as John is uh, going back into the Old Testament to draw language from the Old Testament to show its fulfillment now, its final and full fulfillment in the return of Jesus Christ, we want to go back to those Old Testament texts and understand that language. So now as you read your Bible, as you study your Bible, when you're going through your Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, you can read with understanding when you come to those texts and you can see what those texts 
point us forward to. And you can see how the New Testament authors deal with those texts when they come to them. It's really important for us to be able to read and study our Bibles in the same way. So for that, turn with me to Isaiah 13. Isaiah 13. And again, there are multiple examples of this in the Old Testament. Multiple examples of this in the New Testament. We'll look at a few of those texts as well. Bear with me as we go from text to text here. Isaiah 13, beginning in verse 6. Verse six. The near context now of Isaiah 13 involves a proclamation against Babylon. But what do we know typologically about Babylon? Uh, Babylon is typological of the world system that is in place at the end of the age. This wicked world typified by Babylon. Uh, it's even called Babylon, right? We see that at the end of Revelation. Babylon is typological, if you will, of this world awaiting God's judgment. Look at verse 6. Now again, this involves a near proclamation against the nation of Babylon, but look at how this language points us forward. Verse 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt. They will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. Notice that. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not give their light. You notice the cosmic language now, right? The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I thought this was a proclamation against Babylon. It is. You see how the language, again, presses us against an eschatological judgment when the Lord Jesus Christ will return and set everything right. Okay, It's pressing us against that day as well. I will halt the arrogance of the proud, lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more rare than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. Notice that typological language. Does that language sound familiar? We see that language in Revelation 6, don't we? Cosmic disturbances. Essentially, what is being prophesied is the end of the created order. That word cosmos referring to order, God's created order. And in the decreation of the cosmos, so to speak, is this descent from marred order under the curse of the fall to disorder before God reorders everything in the new heavens and the new earth, right? A new creative work takes place. It's almost as though in Genesis, when everything before God creates is without form and void, there's a sense in which all of the created order, the cosmos, returns to that formless void chaos before God recreates a new heavens and a new earth, before God creates now that is all, all paired together with the judgment of the wicked in the destruction of this sin-ravaged world. It goes together, the judgment of the wicked and the decreation of the cosmos. Look at Isaiah 34. Isaiah 34. Again, we see additional language with respect to this. This is a proclamation of God's judgment against the nations. 
And again, even in the words of the prophet Isaiah, you're going to hear this language that presses us against the eschatological apex of God's judgment at the return of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 1, Come near, you nations, to hear. Heed, you people. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all things that come forth from it. For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations, his fury against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter. Also their slain shall be thrown out. Their stench shall rise from their corpses. The mountains shall be melted with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved. The heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine and as fruit falling from a fig tree. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Edom and on the people of my curse for judgment. You notice the same language, right? Cosmic disturbance. God dealing with the cosmos in judgment. Again, God's, these cosmic disturbances accompanying God's wrath poured out upon the wicked. The decreation of the creation. It's um, a reversal, if you will. What we see is a reversal. Creation, as it were, undone. Order descends to disorder. Verse 8. For, because it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion, its streams shall be turned into pitch, its dust into brimstone, its land shall become burning pitch, it shall not be quenched night or day, its smoke shall ascend forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. No one shall pass through it forever and ever. Typological language, do you see? Really important as we read through our Bibles, as we read through particularly the Old Testament, uh, we see what that language is pointing us to. We see how that language presses us up against the eschatological judgment of the wicked at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we find this typological language all over the Old Testament. We also see this typological language in the New Testament. And for that, turn with me to Luke 21. Luke 21. Luke 21 is the Olivet Discourse. And we find the Olivet Discourse, the Lord speaking about end times, eschatology, and his return. We find that in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and in Luke 21. And I've chosen Luke 21 to take a look at this discourse because Luke 21 has particularly clear typological language associated with it that I think will help us understand this point. The language in Luke 21, if you, if you look carefully at the language of Luke 21, you can see language pertaining to the destruction of Jew- Jerusalem in AD 70. The Lord knows that Jerusalem is going to be sacked that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed in AD 70. And so the language that he uses is language that pertains to that destruction, uh, to that event in AD 70. But that language itself, although it pertains to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, is typological language that points us forward to a full and final consummated judgment at the end of the age, at the return of Jesus Christ, when he 
destroys the cosmos, as it were, decreates. Okay, so again, we see typological language. There are many who are tied up or who get tangled up over the Olivet Discourse because they somehow relate all of the Olivet Discourse to AD 70, even the return of Jesus Christ. We simply can't do that. What's going on in the Olivet Discourse is typological language. It's language that points us forward to something else. Luke chapter 21. Again, the destruction of Jerusalem here, one more installment. Just as the language of Isaiah 13, Isaiah 34 was typological, that began with the judgment of God against Babylon, judgment of God against the nations, now we see the judgment of God against Jerusalem. And it's more, uh, one more type, if you will, or one more iteration, one more installation, pointing us forward to that final eschatological judgment which is to come. Verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. Let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. That all things which are written may be fulfilled. When is that going to take place? It's going to take place at the very end of the age, right? Daniel is told to seal the prophecy of the book, the prophecies that he's been given. Why? Because they pertain to days far off from Daniel's day. They pertain to the days of the end. Now we see in Revelation chapter 5, we see that seal, as it were, um, its seals being loosed, that scroll being opened. Why? Because those days are upon us. Here, these days of vengeance, again, we... The church age is an age of tribulation. These days of vengeance are yet to come. Days of vengeance, verse 22, in which all things which are written are fulfilled. Verse 23, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon his people, this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword. They will be led away captive into all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled all language that pertains to AD 70, and that idea that Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled uh, deals with the age of the church, right? This church age, this age of tribulation in which we now find ourselves. Then, verse 25, and there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming upon the earth for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to happen, look up, lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Do you see how even the Lord here in the Olivet Discourse takes language that applies to AD 70 and the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and presses that typological language right up against the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment. And particularly the, ret- the return of the Lord Jesus Christ as seen accompanied by these cosmic disturbances. In Matthew 24, it's even clearer. In Matthew 24, verse 29, uh, the Lord says, immediately, Immediately after the tribulation of those days. The tribulation of what days? The tribulation of these days. The tribulation of the last days. The tribulation of the church age. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, after the sun will be darkened, 
The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Same language as Luke 21, same language as Mark 13, same language as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, right? Then they will see the Son of Man, or um, then they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Verse 31. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. They will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We'll see another example of this. And again, all of this, this language of judgment associated with cosmic disturbances, all of that language is pointing us forward, frankly, to a time when those cosmic disturbances will actually take place. Right? We see that language associated with um, God's judgment upon Babylon, God's judgment upon nations in the Old Testament. That language is always pointing us forward to an eschatological time when God is going to judge the wicked for their sin and is going to decreate, as it were, the cosmos. All of that comes at the time of the end. And all of that language, typological for its original context, pointing us forward to that last time. We see it again in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we have Peter preaching at Pentecost, and the people there at Pentecost are amazed at... uh, those that were there speaking in their own tongues, right? And they accused them of being drunk. Peter gets up. It's not drunk. They're not drunk. It's only midday. And uh, Peter begins to preach. And he quotes Joel here, Joel chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2, saying essentially that what was described in Joel is now being fulfilled at Pentecost. Well, listen to these words of Peter, uh, beginning in Acts chapter 2, verse 17. And listen, these words span the entire breadth of the church age. And I'll show you how. Verse 17. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God. Now, this is a quote from Joel, the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, said God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Now, Peter is saying at Pentecost that these words of Joel are fulfilled at Pentecost. That what he's saying, what Joel has said, they see happening right there at Pentecost in Acts chapter two. Verse 18, on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. Now, he takes that time at the beginning of the church age and he presses that language up against language that pertains to the end of the church days, uh, church age. Look at verse 19. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass in that age, so to speak, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's in other words, that is typological language that pertains to the last days. It pertains to the church age. It pertains to those days that exist between the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment and to deliver his people. Now, we see in texts like these how the prophets saw those last days, right? We see in texts like these how the prophets saw particularly the, the day of judgment. And we see, in particular, the New Testament, how New Testament authors understood those texts. 
there is typological language that is being used. Language designed to point us, um, for example, the very language that we see in Revelation chapter 6, pointing us to the return of Jesus Christ and his coming at the end of the age in judgment. Language that is often referring to typological events that point to a time when God says essentially enough is enough. Where like the sin of the Amorites reaching its high watermark before the judgment of God, now the sin of the world, so to speak, reaching its high watermark before Jesus Christ comes back in judgment. A time when the plans and purposes of God will come to their finality at the return of Jesus Christ. The scriptures continually direct our attention forward to that day, those days of the end, particularly that day when Jesus Christ comes back. Always pressing us against that day, the return of Jesus Christ in judgment, the last day. In other words, brothers and sisters, we tend to rest on our laurels. Uh, We tend to forget. We tend to think that we have a long time here or that our days are not numbered (laughs) or that our lives are brief or that there isn't a, a judgment coming. We can be like those in 2 Peter chapter 3, those, those mockers who say, where's the promise of his coming? Right? For since the, uh, you know, the, the, the days have come, uh, all things continue as they have before. He's not going to return. Right? We'll look at that text in a moment. And we, in our sluggardliness, become as they are, uh, not concerned with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we're to be very concerned with the, Lord, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Amen? We have work to do. We cannot rest on our laurels. We must persevere. Associated with the coming judgment of the wicked is the dismantling of the created order. Chaos, formless and void, precedes the creative work of God to bring order out of disorder. And when we'll see a new heavens and a new earth. In the end, the creation will descend into disorder. There's a great earthquake, and we'll see this great earthquake throughout Revelation. We'll see these uh, cosmic disturbances throughout the book of Revelation. There's a great earthquake. Mountains are moved out of their place. The sun becomes black. Moon turns to blood. Stars fall. The sky recedes like a scroll. Right now, scientists have proven that the universe is still expanding and expanding at a greater and greater speed. There will come a point when that expansion will stop and it's going to be rolled up like a scroll. It's going to be folded up. It's a reversal, if you will, of creation. And this is the long prophesied judgment upon the nations for their wickedness. This is the the judgment that has been promised by God upon the nations for their sin. All the types and shadows of that future judgment pointing to its reality, pointing to its soon fulfillment. Again, disorder that precedes new order, a new heavens and a new earth. God is not slack concerning his promise. Look there with me at 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. God is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3 and look at verse 3. We know this first of the last days, right? We know this first 
that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. They mock, uh, not remembering that there was a flood that once came upon the earth. They mocked like those before the flood, right? Those that were sitting under the preaching of Noah for that 120 years before the flood, they mocked like they did. And God's not going to judge the earth. And then God opened up the flood upon the earth. The earth at that time, judged by water. The earth at the time of Christ's return, judged by fire, right? Verse five, this they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men where there will be, as it were, um, God's judgments poured out upon the cosmos at the judgment of the wicked. But beloved, verse eight, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long-suffering, patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord, again, pressing us up against the Lord's return, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. In other words, be watchful, be ready. In which, in that day, the heavens will pass away with a great noise. They'll be rolled up, as it were. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Created order. Romans chapter 8, subjected to futility. That order will be delivered from its bondage to corruption when the sons of God are revealed in glory at the return of Jesus Christ. Uh, That created order will be dissolved, as it were. A new one will take its place. That leaves then reference in Revelation chapter 6 to God's ultimate dealings with wicked men. So God, in Revelation chapter 6, he begins by dealing with the cosmos in verses 12 through 14, as it were. Now he begins his ultimate dealings with wicked men, beginning in verse 15. Back in Revelation chapter 6, verse 15. And the kings of the earth then, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man, they hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks and the mountains. That is a reference to the language of Isaiah 2 before the idolatrous southern tribes are exiled to Babylon. John pulls that language from Isaiah 2 before they're exiled because of their idolatry. Okay? Verse 16. And they said to the mountains and said to the rocks, Fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That reference is the language in Hosea chapter 10 
before the idolatrous northern tribes were exiled to Assyria. See what John is doing. John is pulling language from the Old Testament um, referring to the judgment of God upon his idolatrous people. And he's using that language from the southern exile, from the northern exile, using that language to refer now to those who will be judged for their idolatry at the end of the age. Verse 17, for because the great day of his wrath has finally come and who is able to stand? In verse 15, we see the entirety of mankind represented. From slaves there to free men, rich to poor, nobodies to somebodies. Those in positions of power and authority and those under their authority. In other words, this is the entire world order represented in these descriptors here in verse 15. The entire world order, and it's a world order that we'll later see described as Babylon. In Revelation, we'll see it described as Babylon, this wicked world system and those who dwell in it. And again, once again, John is driving language from the well of the Old Testament. Uh, turn back with me once more to Isaiah chapter 2. I want you to see this language in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2. And look there beginning in verse... Five. Even the heading over my text says the day of the Lord. This is language, again, pointing us forward, typological language used here in reference to God's ultimate dealings with wicked men at the end of the age at the return of Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter two, verse five. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. In a new covenant context, who is the house of Jacob? Who are Jacob, as it were? The church, God's people, those who are circumcised of heart, right? So again, when we read our Old Testaments, we read our Old Testaments through the lens of the work of Jesus Christ, the person and work of Jesus Christ. So come, house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Verse six, for you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because this house of Jacob filled with Eastern ways. They are soothsayers like the Philistines. They are pleased with the children of foreigners. Their land is also full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is also full of horses. There is no end of their chariots. Their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. People bow down, they bow down to their idol. Each man humbles himself before his idol. Therefore, do not forgive them. These are the national sins of Israel. What does that sound like? Sounds like the national sins of our day and age, doesn't it? The national sins we see today in our own day. Verse 10, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, upon all the oaks of Bashan, upon all the high mountains, upon all the hills that are lifted up, upon every high tower, upon every fortified wall, upon the, all the ships of Tarshish, upon all the beautiful sloops, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, but the idols he shall utterly abolish." They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth. Does that sound familiar, that language? 
They will go there from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty, which he arises to shake the earth mightily. And again, this is language that presses us up against the return of Jesus Christ and this cosmic decreation that takes place at the end of the age. In that day, verse 20, a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they have made each for himself to worship. He'll cast them away to the moles and to the bats, to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. In other words, they come to the realization that their idols are not going to save them. Their idols cannot help them. And so what do they do when they come to that realization? They throw away their idols. They throw their, their idols away to the, to the moles, to the bats of the caves and the clefts of the rocks. They're useless. They're completely worthless. There is nowhere they can hide. And their idols are worthless to help them. Verse 22, sever yourselves from such a man whose breath is in his nostrils, for of what account is he? Of no account whatsoever before the power of the Lord in the day of judgment. He casts off his idols. He finally, finally sees them, finally recognizes them, acknowledges them to be absolutely useless. And think about the idols of this age. All that money in your bank account is useless in that day. <laughs> All of the trust that you've placed in your possessions, absolutely useless. The faith that you had in your job, absolutely useless, worthless. All the things that you accumulated, absolutely worthless, absolutely useless in that day. You might as well throw them to the bats and the moles in the cave. They serve no purpose. They're not going to help you in that day. Who is there to help? The Lord Jesus Christ, right? God is there to help. He comes to the terrifying realization, Isaiah chapter 2, in the last days there is no escape. And now it's too late. Now it's too late for of what account is he? He's scrambling into caves and rocks. In Revelation 6, he's crying out to the rocks to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb, and it is too late. These things all take place because the great day of his wrath has come. That's where we are in Revelation chapter 6. In Revelation chapter 6, the great day of his wrath has now come. The Lord has returned in judgment, and who is there who can stay his hand. Verse 17 there, for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? That question, who is able to stand? That's being asked by those who are clamoring to hide themselves under rocks. Do you see? Who is able to stand? The answer is no one. No one. They're scrambling to hide themselves. And it's a question that can only really be asked by one who's come to the inescapable realization of God's judgment being poured out. He's come to understand that God's judgment is now being finally and fully poured out, that he has no escape. And that question then comes to his lips, comes to his mind. Who is able to stand? At that point, it's too late. It's too late. And again, that day being described, Revelation chapter 6 is being described as a, a day of great wrath. It's no longer a day for patience, no longer a day for long-suffering. God's mercy upon them has come to an end. The opportunity for mercy has come to an end. Now, there is simply wrath being poured out in the day of wrath. It reminds me of Romans chapter 2. It's been a little while since we were there. But in Revelation, uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 3, 
Paul asked, do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things, this list of sins that Paul has just gone through, and now doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? There is no escape from the judgment of God. Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance, in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are merely treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There is no partiality with God. Who is able to stand? There's only one who could stand. That was the Lord Jesus Christ. And because he stands in our place, we can stand in him. <laughs> it's the only way that we can stand. Those who stand upon the rock are the only ones who can stand. Psalm 130 alludes to this. Look at Psalm 130 quickly with me. We'll conclude with this. Asks the same question. Psalm 130, verse 1. Out of the depths I've cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand? No one. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. There's forgiveness with the Lord. Forgiveness through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Forgiveness that he may be feared by those who are forgiven. That forgiveness teaches us to fear the Lord. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, Hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy. With him is abundant redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Praise the Lord. Amen. Praise the Lord. So as we come to now the, the end of our text, we've now come through the entire course of the church age, beginning with the opening of the scroll at the ascension of Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ receives the kingdom and begins to open the seals and to execute the judgments that are written in the scroll, uh, now to the end of the church age, at the return of Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ comes in victory to judge the wicked and to deliver his people. From the ascension of Christ to receive the kingdom, to the beginnings of the age as he opened the seals, now to the sixth seal and the return of Jesus Christ in judgment. Our account then ends with chapter 7 and a glorious depiction of the people of God in the worship of heaven. And that's an account we'll take up next time together, if the Lord allows. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you uh, for this depiction. Uh, thank you, Lord, for uh, the encouragement that it gives us to be mindful to be watchful uh, for that day, to be ready. Not, not to be as those who walk in darkness. We're sons of light. Let us walk, Lord, as sons of light. Let us walk in the day and not in the night. And Lord, help us to be mindful of your soon return, living 
as those who are mindful of your soon return, hastening your soon return and living, Lord, as we should in light of your soon return. We are citizens of the everlasting kingdom. We were redeemed, we were saved in holiness. Lord, help us uh, to live, to stand for, uh, to cultivate within us holiness, Lord, righteousness. Help us to put off the old man, putting on the new man. Uh, Lord, living for righteousness as slaves of God in anticipation of your soon return when we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Continue, Lord, to press us against the, uh, that coming day. Uh, teach us, Lord, to number our days. As the psalmist says, we might gain a heart of wisdom. We love you and we thank you for texts that do just that and encourage us in that way. Apply them to our hearts and minds for your glory, for our good, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.